Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Every day in our community, there are kids who need positive role models, help with schoolwork, and a place to have fun and feel safe. They need to feel like they matter. These kids need youth for hope. There's a need out in the community, and a lot of these needs sometimes aren't met. And I know some people say, well, I'm too busy. And that's where I was at one point, but I said, you know what, I've got to do this, not only um, for myself, but that's what the Lord wants us to help one another out, and especially where there's a need. The kids really are just so fun, and they just, they have so much energy, and they just make you feel really good. It's a, it's a chance for you to, to make an impact. Um, and be an important part of their life that you know they might not get at home. It's just nice just to see him, my, my student, just get something and just be so proud of himself and be able to encourage him. It's just so rewarding to see that smile when he gets something. And I get a great deal of satisfaction in knowing that I tutored and helped somebody with what they needed to. They seem really excited about learning when they come here. It's been amazing. Um, just watching the kids learn about God, and some of them never heard about the gospel before. To volunteer and make a difference in these kids' lives, sign up in the atrium today or go to gethope.net slash youthforhope. kid serious about slash I'll tell you that right now whoever did that voiceover but hey what a great opportunity to get involved and change the future of our area working with kids who are less fortunate don't have all the opportunities that many of our kids have and right now we're basically down to we need a few tutors from 4:30 to 5:30 on Thursday uh, college kid teacher retired uh, come alongside these kids make a real difference in their life you can check that out in the atrium as you leave let's get that knocked out this weekend also, since we're in a new series, uh, you can pick up your at-home brochure today. This is designed with families in mind. I uh, give you some great things you can talk about with your kids to take what we talk about and take it to a whole nother level. So pick that up. Uh, the greeters will have that as you, as you leave. And I see a lot of people who fall into that demographic of 18 to 29. Uh, we would love to see you Sunday night at 5 o'clock. We had our first service last weekend. We had 237 young adults who showed up that. We were blown away. I was hoping for 30, so that really exceeded my expectations. And actually, we found out that uh, the high schoolers are no longer having pulse on Sunday night. So we're also inviting those high schoolers, 16 to 18, somewhere in that age range, to come be a part. You know, as I've said, that age group is the most unreached demographic in America with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we're going to reach the triangle and change the world, we're going to have to do a better job at that. And then one last thing I was sharing earlier, a lot of people for, uh, are concerned about my health. I keep having people ask me, you've lost weight, are you okay? Which really doesn't mean you've lost weight, it means you look sick, you know, are you okay? Right, big difference there. Most of us would be honored to lose weight, but when they say, are you okay, you think, okay. Uh, my wife has put me on a new diet. I'm great. No more meat, no more dairy, no more eggs, no more processed food. I uh, basically eat cardboard and uh, <laughs> a little bit of salt and pepper on that. And uh, I'm projecting by Christmas I'll be down to my original birth weight, seven pounds, nine ounces. And uh, I don't think it's coincidence. She asked me to up my life insurance and put me on this new diet at the same time. Coincidence? I think not. But anyway, um, last week we began our series, The Great Paradox, Finding Happiness in the Strangest Places. We're talking about the Beatitudes. This is where it comes from. 
Beatitudes are located in Matthew chapter 5. And last week, if you were here, we, we started out by talking about what does it mean to be blessed. You know, Jesus says, hey, you're blessed if you're poor, you're blessed if you're hungry and thirsty, and you're blessed if you're meek, and you're blessed if you're mourning, and you're blessed as you're persecuted. And, uh, you know, a lot of people, you read that, and your first reaction could mean, blessed means you're out of luck. You know, you're out of luck if you're poor. You know, maybe that's what it meant in the first century. And I point that out because uh, uh, we learned last week that, that blessed comes from a Greek word, makarios. The root of the word is joy. And we get the word happiness from it. But this is, this is true happiness. This is, this is a happiness that would be described by contentment and satisfaction and joy. Uh, it's not a happiness that's based on your external circumstances. This is not a happiness. You're not happy because you, you got a raise. You're not happy because you finally bought your dream home or you get to drive the car of your dreams or you got into the school you wanted to get into. It's not based on external circumstances. By the way, let me just say this. There is another word in the Bible also translated blessed, different word altogether, and it means external circumstances. Uh, in fact, we still use it this way today. If, if, if God has blessed you financially, we might say that God has blessed you financially or God has blessed you with a great spouse or God has blessed you with great children or God has blessed you with all your teeth. Maybe, maybe that's it. But it's an external, it's an external thing. Uh, this is what we learned last week, though, if you weren't here. Uh, we're learning that Jesus is teaching us <clears throat> that we have, we have the potential to be happy in, in, in spite of our external circumstances when Jesus Christ sits on the throne of our lives, when he, the king, has dominion in our lives. In other words, Jesus is in control of our lives. That's when we will begin to experience this true happiness, this joy, this contentment, this satisfaction that I think we're all longing for. And, and this is the reason. Only God can make you happy. Your circumstances cannot make you happy, and we could attest to that. Only God can make you happy. In fact, we summed it up, summed it up this way. Happiness is a spiritual need, and you cannot meet a spiritual need with a natural source. So what you're left with is God. Only God can make you happy. By the way, let me point out one other thing about the Beatitudes. Understand when we study the Beatitudes, we're not studying the hopes and wishes of Jesus. Understand that when Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who show mercy. When Jesus made these statements, understand he was making a pronouncement of truth. Jesus was saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. This is a fact. Blessed are those who mourn. This is a fact. You're going to be blessed if you can become meek. This is a fact. He's telling you how to be happy. And I also say that because uh, in the Bible, the opposite of this word blessed is the word woe. And Jesus used that word also several times. Uh, we think of Matthew 23, the seven woes, you know. But you go to Matthew 23, verse 13, woe to you, teachers of the law. Uh, verse 16, woe to you, blind guys. Now understand, anytime Jesus used the word woe, bad, okay? Woe means bad because the word actually means doomed. It actually means cursed. But understand, when Jesus said woe to the teachers of the law, when he said woe to the blind guys, he was talking to the religious leaders. He wasn't wishing them to be doomed. He wasn't wishing them to be cursed. He was basically saying, he was stating a fact. He was saying because you are the way you are, you are doomed and you are cursed. Now I'm telling you all of this because I want us just to finish up this series and actually understand the Beatitudes. We've read them all of our lives. Many of us have memorized them, but we still don't have a clue what they mean. Understand this isn't wishful thinking on Jesus' part. These are divine pronouncements of truth. Now, with all of that in mind, let's look at the first beatitude. We got a good introduction last weekend. 
The first beatitude is found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, and this is blessed. There's our word makarios. It means happy. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is, and that tells us right away it's the present tense, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus begins the beatitudes by saying this. When we become poor in spirit, immediately we be, we're in a position to partake in the kingdom of heaven. We get to be involved in the kingdom of heaven immediately once we become poor in spirit. So if that's the case, I want to be involved in the kingdom of heaven. It makes sense that we understand, well, what does it actually mean to be poor in spirit? In fact, what I want to do over the next few minutes is answer three basic questions. That's the first one. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? And a lot of people, uh, if you read books and you've listened to other messages, a lot of people believe that this talk is talking about being financially poor. But if it means financially poor, it, it, it leaves out pretty every person in the U.S. Because compared to 90 to 95% the rest of the world, Americans, we are wealthy. I mean, if you have a household income of $25,000, you are actually richer than 99% of the rest of the people on the planet. You're in the top 1% of the wealthiest people on earth with just a household average income of $25,000. Right? So this wouldn't be to us at all. On top of that... You know, if being financially poor means that you're blessed, we should probably stop helping the poor. I mean, we give a lot of money to the poor every year, so much so that Wake County now refers people to our church because they don't even, as a government, have the, 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 the means to help people. So they say, go visit Hope Community Church. But if it means you're going to be blessed, if you're financially poor, we should stop helping the poor because if this is true, we're taking away their opportunity to be blessed. I mean, have you ever thought about that? And then on top of that, we need to take all your money, right, so you can be blessed. And I know a lot of you are thinking, Mike, I don't know the Greek, but it cannot say that. You, you cannot, that it cannot mean we give you all our money. And you're right. You're right. This has nothing to do with being financially poor. It has to do with being spiritually poor. By the way, there are two different words that Jesus could have used to refer to those who are poor. Two words that were used in the Greek in the first century. The first word, it doesn't really matter, but it's penace. It was, it was used in reference to the working poor. Uh, it described the person who lived like day to day. The person who lived hand to mouth. It described the person who could work, but they couldn't earn a whole lot of money, right? In today's society, we would, we would describe the person who can only make minimum wage and they can just kind of eke out an existence. That would be the word panace. That's the working poor. It's not the word that Jesus uses here. There's another Greek word that describes the poor. It's the word tukos, and it was used to describe the begging poor. It was used in the first century in the Bible to describe people who were physically unable to work. And we see these stories all the way through the Gospels. Sometimes it's because someone was blind. Sometimes it was because they were maimed. Sometimes it was because they were crippled, right? And all they could do was beg. And if someone didn't come along and show mercy on them, if someone didn't drop a coin in their cup, the reality was in the first century, you were going to die. There was no government plan. There was no government to deal with Disabilities Act. There was none of that. So someone either showed mercy on you and dropped some money in your cup when you were begging or you were going to die. Now understand... That's the word that Jesus uses when he describes poor in spirit. And Jesus uses that word because, understand, this is where we all start spiritually. I mean, as we stand before God without Jesus Christ in our life, understand we are maimed, we are blind, we are crippled spiritually. And if someone doesn't show us mercy, understand we are doomed. We are doomed. Now, here's the good news. When you get to the place where you can acknowledge that about yourself, and you say, okay, I get that, 
and you discover that someone did have mercy on you, that person being Jesus Christ, Jesus wants you to understand in the Beatitudes, this is the beginning of happiness. And the happiness that this is going to bring into your life, it's a happiness that can't be taken away from you. By the way, when we talk about God showing us mercy, understand he didn't just drop a coin in our cup. When God showed us mercy, you know what he did? He adopted us into the family. He sat us at the table. He said, you're my child, and all my riches I'm going to pour out on you. There's a great story of this uh, in the Bible. It's about a little boy named Mephibosheth, which is a great name. I wish I had a kid named Mephibosheth, you know. Probably get beat up a lot, but I mean, that's a great name, Mephibosheth, right? Saul was the first king of Israel. He had a son named Jonathan. Remember, Jonathan and David were like best friends. Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth. And Saul, remember, tried to kill David and all those things. And, but God had already told Saul, you're not qualified to be the king. David, you're going to be the next king of Israel. Sure enough, Saul dies in a battle. Jonathan dies in a battle. David takes the throne of Israel. Now, as customary with eastern kings, when you became the king, you wiped out all the family, all the descendants of the previous king. David, being a man of war, went to work, wiping out Saul's descendants. Now, there was this one little boy named Mephibosheth. And it says that his nurse was carrying him to escape the wrath of David, to get away from David's army, and in fleeing from the army, she dropped him, and he became crippled. And they ended up down in this little place called Lodabar. In the Hebrew, it means barren wasteland. So you have this crippled boy living in a barren wasteland, living out of his life, hoping that David never finds him. One day, one day, David is walking around his palace, and, he, and he's having a moment of compassion. He says, is there anybody left of Saul's household? that I could show mercy to. And, uh, you know, David's had his military intelligence working. He says, well, there's a guy named Mephibosheth, just a kid down in Lodabar. He doesn't even know. We know he's there, but he's there. You could show mercy to him. And David said, go get him. And can you imagine the day when, when David's troop showed up on Mephibosheth's porch and he looked out the curtains and he thought, this is curtains, right? This is it for me. This is how it ends, right? But it says in 2 Samuel 9 that they took him back to the palace. And I love 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 13. It says he ate every day at the king's table. Now let me put that in perspective. The great King David. His, his son Absalom. Remember Absalom? How about Solomon, the wisest person who ever lived, sitting at that table? Beautiful Tamar. And Mephibosheth at the king's table. Now you got to understand, this is what God did for us. He didn't drop a coin in our cup. He adopted us into his family. And the way we stay poor in spirit is we never, ever forget that. We never, ever forget that without God doing something in our life, showing his mercy to us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, we would never be in his family. We would never have a relationship. And that's really what it means to be poor in spirit. We realize without God, I am absolutely nothing. I am a zero. I am the biggest loser on the planet without God. Let me show you an interesting story, Luke 18. This is from Jesus. He's telling a parable, but he's showing the contrast between being poor in spirit and being self-righteous. He says this in Luke 18, verse 9, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. You know any Christians like that? Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. I want you to look at how humble this prayer was. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, UNC grads, even, uh, says it in the Greek, I don't make this stuff up, uh, uh, or even like the tax collector, and the tax collector standing there like, I'm right here, I can hear you, you're using your outside voice, right? Now look what is it, look at this. 
He says, I fast a week, I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all, of I, all that I get. And you can just hear the self-righteous attitude here. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Notice how Jesus wraps up the parable. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified. What does that mean? It means he went home saved, made whole. It means that he went home reconciled back to God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus is telling us there what it means to be poor in spirit. Here's question number two. Why did Jesus begin the Beatitudes with being poor in spirit? I mean, why did he start here? Why didn't he start with being meek or hunger and thirsting for righteousness or mourning? Why did he start with poor in spirit? You got to understand this, for all of us as we sit in this room this weekend, this is where our journey with God begins. And I'm just going to tell you this as a friend. Forget I'm a pastor, forget any of this. I'm just telling you as a friend. If you've never come to the place in your life where you realize the poverty of your spirit, I can tell you this. You have not begun your journey with God. You don't have a relationship with God. And if there's any hope, you have any hope of ever being reconciled back to God so you can actually have a relationship with him, it will never happen until you get to the place where you are poor in spirit. You've got to get to the place where you realize, I am spiritually bankrupt before God. You have to realize that you have absolutely zero, absolutely nothing in your spiritual account that will ever, ever impress God. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. It's interesting, the opposite, and we kind of alluded to it in, in Luke 18, the opposite of being poor in spirit is self-righteousness. By the way, what is self-righteousness? It's our own energy, our own attempt to get God's love, God's approval. It's religion. It's going to church. It's reading our Bible, maybe giving some money, maybe even sponsoring an orphan. All these things we try to do to earn God's love, to earn God's approval, somehow to impress God. And I will tell you this, self-righteousness is the greatest enemy of happiness. And it's because self-righteousness is based on pride. Self-righteousness says this. Everybody else may have nothing. Everybody else may be a loser. Everybody else may be a big zero spiritually, but you don't know my upbringing. You don't know my family heritage. I have something in me, unlike other people, that impresses God so much, he wants to have a relationship with me. Let me see if I can explain how dumb that kind of thinking is. Look at the person beside you. Just look at one of the, okay, look at the person beside you. Go ahead. You know what's interesting? Every service, people have looked away from their spouse. That tells me this is not good. Okay. Okay. Um, let's say you and the person you just looked at, you're both hopelessly in debt. You have this incredible debt. Let's, let's just throw out a number. $16 trillion, okay? This happens to be the national debt, so I thought I'd throw it out there. But I want to show you how much that debt is. You know how much $16 trillion is? I read this week. 330 American citizens. Every American citizen, infant, child, toddler, third grader, adult, grandma, grandpa, every adult citizen has to pay back 50, I mean, every American citizen, all 330 million, have, have to pay back $51 million. I mean, $51,000 to pay off our $16 trillion debt. My point is, it's a lot of money. Let's say you and the person beside you both have a $16 trillion debt. And the person beside you says, you know what, i got to get to work on paying off this debt. I'm sending them a dollar. I'm sending God a dollar to pay off my debt. All right? You say, loser. I'm sending God five bucks. 
to get started on my debt. Now, here's the thing. Even though you're both hopelessly still in debt, self-righteousness makes you feel better about yourself, makes you feel better than the person beside you. I mean, think about it. How dumb is that logic? You see, self-righteousness says you are spiritually rich because I'm a good person. I do good things. It says you're spiritually rich when in reality you are spiritually bankrupt. Have you ever studied the seven churches in Revelation? Sure you have. That's what you do for fun, I'm sure, when, when you're not watching football. But if you've ever studied it, and some of you have, there's a church in Laodicea, and they're kind of notorious. It seems to be the one we remember because they were known as being a lukewarm church. This is what Jesus said about that Laodicean church. Uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 15. I know your deeds that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Now that's descriptive, isn't it? By the way, the Greek word for spit here is lugai. We get lugi from it. And, uh, but it, no, I'm just kidding. That I did make up. That's not really true. Actually, the Greek word for spit is spit, okay? And that's what it means. So, you ought to come Sundays at five and see where my mind is, okay? The church is lukewarm. Why are they lukewarm? Well, uh, what did these Christians, they are Christians, they're Christ followers, you can read it yourself. What do they do to make God want to just throw up? I mean, if, if it's possible to do something that makes God want to vomit, don't you want to know what that is so you don't do that, right? Okay, verse 17, this is why. This is why you make me want to throw up. You say, I am rich. You say, I have acquired wealth. You say, I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. Now I know Jesus is, is speaking in spiritual terms because the Laodiceans weren't running around blind and naked. So what's the problem? The problem was they were self-righteous. It was their self-righteousness. They thought they had it all. They thought that they had arrived. They didn't think that they needed anything. And you got to understand the ultimate spiritual deception is to feel like you've finally gotten to the place in your spiritual journey where you don't need anything from God. Because in reality, every day we need everything. You know, I grew up in a Christian home. I accepted Christ when I was five. I went to a Christian university. I went to seminary for graduate work. Do you know I have been a Christian for 51 years? Do you know I have absolutely nothing that God wants or needs? Without God, I am spiritually bankrupt. So Jesus, this church at Laodicea, he reminds them, hey guys, without me you have no hope. In fact, the only reason you even have a relationship with God is because I died for you, because of my sacrifice. It has nothing to do with your pedigree. It has nothing to do with your good works. But in your self-righteousness, well, you've kind of forgotten that. Now, let me just tell you this. Self-righteousness is alive and well today. This is something that went back all the way to Exodus. Uh, Moses went up, up, up on the mountain and God says, here's the Ten Commandments. He gave down the Ten Commandments. He gave it to the Hebrew people. Here are the Ten Commandments. All you have to do is obey the Ten Commandments because they were living under the law. Remember we said that was the Old Covenant until Jesus came and said there's a new sheriff in town. So God gave these Ten Commandments to the Jewish people. Over years, over centuries, the religious leaders of the Jewish people, they decided to take these Ten Commandments and to expand on them. For example, the fourth commandment says this, remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. And for the Jew, for the Jew it simply meant this. It meant instead of working on Saturday, you rested and you reflected. You worshiped God on Saturday. 
The religious leaders centuries later thought this isn't clear enough for the people. They need some very, very specifics so that they can feel good about themselves if they're keeping this commandment. So they spelled out what they thought God meant to say. And what did they do? They added 39 requirements to the one command that said, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Here's just some examples. If your lamp ran out of oil on the Sabbath, they decided you can't put oil in it because that would be working and you'd be guilty of breaking the Sabbath. You just had to stay in the dark. Second, you couldn't carry a needle in your robe. You couldn't cut your fingernails. You couldn't cut your toenails. You couldn't cut your hair or trim your beard on the Sabbath. You couldn't wear an artificial limb. You couldn't wear your artificial teeth on the Sabbath. You had to gum your food and walk around with a limp, I guess, on the Sabbath, right? Because if you put them on, you'd be guilty of working. You could not walk across the grass. Do you know why? Because if you walk across the grass, you'd break the grass. Therefore, you'd be guilty of cutting the grass. And that's working. You'd be breaking the Sabbath. You could not wear sandals shod with nails on the Sabbath. Because everywhere you went, you would be carrying nails. Therefore, you would be guilty of breaking the Sabbath. 39 of these ridiculous rules, and the people, they begin to measure how good or how bad they were doing in their relationship with God by how they were following this list of rules. Sound familiar? It should. Because Christians and churches all over America and all over the world, we still do that today. We take God's command and we expand on them because if we can do, take it to another level, man, we can, really, we can really impress God with our faithfulness. I'll give you an example. I grew up in a free will Baptist church, which is not a paradox, but it is an oxymoron because free will Baptist does not even go together. Free will and Baptist, don't, it shouldn't even go together. And on top of that, it was named Liberty. I mean, God has a sense of humor, right? And this is what we were taught. It is a sin to drink alcohol. In fact, our pastors would go through great lengths to preach and teach us that Jesus actually turned water into grape juice. Because he was incapable of turning water into wine because Jesus would have never been responsible for people drinking alcohol because that's a sin. It was all an attempt to reinforce that we should never drink. Now, understand, I think that's a great idea. I think alcohol is a horrible thing. I have a grandfather I never one time saw sober in my life, ever, ever. So I, you know, I have issues you know, about alcohol. I think a lot about alcohol and especially how it's been abused. But understand, there's nowhere in the Bible that says don't drink alcohol. In fact, the contrary. I mean, when, when, when they said Jesus, when he turned the water into wine, he said the best for last. Trust me, it wasn't grape juice. They wouldn't have been happy about that, right? How about Paul? He said to Timothy, you got some stomach issues. Drink a little wine. It's good for your stomach. It'll help your stomach out, right? This is what the Bible says. Ephesians 5.18. Don't get drunk. Don't get drunk. You get drunk, now you're in a danger area. Now you're breaking the law of God. But it says don't get drunk. Now, if you don't want to drink, I think it's commendable. But you got to understand, it's a human law that you've come up with. It's, it's not God's law, you know. Did you know there are still churches in America that require the women who come to church there to wear their hair in buns? Did you know that? I call it living in bondage. <laughs> right? They say, hey, that's the law of God. That's the law of God. Here's one. Some churches say women can't wear makeup. Now, you know how I feel about this. I've, if the barn needs paint, put some paint on it. I, 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 I'm a big, strong favor. But some people say, no, no, no. That's the law of God, right? Right, right. It's keeping the law of God. I had a guy come up to me one weekend before the services, and he said, I, I like the church. I like your teaching. I like the music. But I, I was raised that you wear your suit, your best dress. I mean, you, the women wear hats. You dress up nice to go to church. I said, that's great, but it's, I, don't, I don't know that I've ever seen that in the Bible. And I said, by the way, do you feel like dressing up on Sunday kind of cancels out all the mess you do during the week, you know? You think God is so impressed how good you look on Sunday, he just forgets everything else? I don't think he ever came back. But anyway, you know, <laughs> people get things in their mind. Well, wait a minute, this is the law of God. 
I was out under the portico one weekend. We had just had communion, and somebody walked out and said, I just want you to know I never take communion. I said, well, why? Well, the church I grew up in, we taught that when Jesus, when he began communion, it was in the upper room, with, and he used the common cup. And you guys use a lot of little plastic cups, and you, you can only use one cup when you have communion. And I said, well, Jesus only had 12 at his dinner party, too. I mean, how, what do we do with that? We, say, we can only have 12 people sitting around the table with a common cup. Where do we? No, see, it's not the law of God. In fact, this is what Jesus said. This is all Jesus said about communion. This represents my body. This represents my blood. As often as you do it, doesn't say you have to do it weekly. Doesn't say you have to do it daily. Doesn't say you have to do it monthly or yearly. He says, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. But we can take that and add 39 of our own little laws about what does it mean to have, have communion. And, it, and we make it up like it's the law of God. And then if we can abide by these things, we feel better about ourselves. And we would never say it, but we walk out of church thinking, God has got to be impressed with me. I mean, he's got to be thinking, I didn't know what a deal I was getting when I got him, you know. Because we're so good. Let me tell you something. I'll say this as clear as I can. You will never impress God. You are incapable of impressing God. Understand, that's why Jesus came. If you could impress God and earn your way back to God on your own, why would Jesus need to bother to leave the splendor of heaven and come to this earth and die on a cross? He would say, get your act together. You see, he came because he knew there's nothing we can do to impress God. There's nothing we can do to win our way back to God. We can never be good enough or perfect enough. But as long as you think you're righteous because of your behavior, you'll never be happy. Because the beginning of happiness is the realization that you're spiritually bankrupt. And that only comes when you get to the place where you say, God, I get it. I have nothing good in myself. I have nothing to offer you. Without you, I am lost and hopeless. What did Jesus say in John 15, 5? Without me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Early service was better on that than you guys were. <laughs> All right, here's the big question. How do you keep an attitude of being poor in spirit? I mean, think about it. We all have it when we come to Christ, right? I mean, the more sin you have, the more grateful you are, right? So when you come to Christ, you're incredibly grateful that, that God has extended his mercy and his grace to you and, you. and you're incredibly grateful because you know you don't deserve it. You know that God has given you what you don't deserve. We're like that. How do we keep that attitude even years after we've been followers of Jesus Christ? Let me just give you a couple of things that have helped me. One is learn to embrace grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. What you've been given, you've been given because of God's grace, not because of anything you've done to earn it. So embrace grace. And maybe you are a list keeper. Maybe that's what your Christian, Christianity has kind of just evolved into, just keeping the list, right? And I'll just say this. If you're a list keeper, I feel for you. And I get it. I, I spent most of my life there. I know, I know exactly what it's like to operate under the guilt and the weight of the list. Never, ever being able to measure up to it. I mean, I totally get it. And I understand that if you're living life as a list keeper, you, you're living in bondage. You're living a defeated life. You, every day is a sense of failure because every day you're so aware of your failures. So 
So I would say to you more than anything this weekend, you just need a good solid dose of grace. You just need a good solid dose of grace that says you are free to obey God and you're not, you don't have to be enslaved to any person's list. You need a good solid dose of grace that reminds you that all of your attempts at being righteous, all of your attempts of being good and perfect before God, God says, you know what, in my presence they just look like filthy rags to me. You, you need a good solid dose of grace that just reminds you that God loves you and accepts you where you are. Doesn't mean he wants you to stay where you are, but he loves and accepts you where you are. You remember John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery, they brought her to Jesus, they were going to stone her. They thought they had Jesus between a rock and a hard place. And Jesus responded to them, right? And the men dropped the rocks and they left. And Jesus was left with that woman and he looked her in the eyes and he said, where are those who condemn you? She said, they're gone. He said, I don't condemn you either. Now, go clean up your act. Let's get it together, girl. You got a future in front of you. James 4, 6 says this. God opposes the proud. You could put self-righteous there, but he gives grace to the humble those who are poor in spirit. Here's the second key to, I think, keeping an attitude of being poor in spirit is just learn to spend more time in God's presence. Uh, I always think of Isaiah 6.1. This is what it says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I, Isaiah, re, 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 speaking of himself, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted. The train of his road filled the temple. So somehow, God gave Isaiah, this great prophet, the opportunity to see into the throne room of God. And what he witnessed was God's holiness and his perfection, right? What was Isaiah's reaction, verse 5, woe to me? It's the very same word we looked at earlier. I am ruined. I am doomed. Do you know why? He goes on to say, I am a man of unclean lips. I got a potty mouth. I got some work to do. And my point is, when he was drawn into the presence of a perfect God, he was e e immediately reminded of where he would never measure up to God's perfection and God's holiness. Now, why did Isaiah respond that way? Because I'll tell you this, it is impossible to spend time with God without being reminded of the areas where you don't measure up. And you need to continue to do some work through God's power and his spirit. Because when you get into the presence of God who's rich in grace, rich in mercy, rich in purity, rich in holiness... You're reminded that without him, just how bankrupt you are. I'll, I'll give you an example. Friday, yes, Friday was Laura's birthday. And uh, so I said, honey, what do you want to do for your birthday? And she says, well, we're off on Fridays. And she says, well, I've never been to Charleston. Let's just go down to Charleston and spend the night. That'll be fun. So we hop in the car. We go down to Charleston for her birthday. And uh, we had a great time. And... Uh, but it required that Saturday morning we get up. Now, typically, I get up really early on Saturday morning, sometimes 5 to 6 in the morning. I go downstairs. I work in my office on the message. I come in by around 11 and work up till the 4.15 service. So it's kind of a busy day for me. So I try to get a little extra work done during the week because I knew that we were going to have to get up, eat breakfast, drive back, and it's probably going to be 1 or 2 o'clock before we got back, and I'm a little stressed out about that. So I'm, I'm waking Laura up at 4.30 Saturday morning. Like, hey, your birthday was yesterday. Get over it. Let's get, we got, life's got to move on. Come on. <laughs> And, you know, uh, and so we're eating breakfast, and I'm all stressed. We just go, let's get everything in the car, and, and we're making it back, you know, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm obeying uh, most of the laws of the land, and, I, and I'm coming back, and, and, I'm, and I'm making good time, and I, and I get off on 95 on the 40, and er, traffic just stopped. 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 I found out later there was a car carrier 
One of those big semis that carries cars, it flipped over, cars were everywhere. So, so they're blocked. So I'm holding the steering wheel, white knuckly, because we're not moving. And I said, find out what's going on. So she's on her phone. What's going on? I can't find anything. Find something, you know, find something. Find me an alternative route. And, and she's looking, and, she's, and, and she says, honey, it's going to be okay. We have about three hours before church. Don't patronize me. You don't know the stress I'm under and how important I am. I'm saving the kingdom. I got to get back to church, you know. <laughs> Happy birthday, <laughs> you know. It's finally cleared up. We got back. Um, I go to my office. I open my Bible. I'm going to spend a little time getting ready to speak. And God says, you're a jerk. <laughs> yeah. And so we had, to, we had to fix that. We had to fix that. This is what I'll promise you. If you'll spend as much time in the presence of God as you do in the presence of Facebook, Ouch. <laughs> You're not going to have any problem with self-righteousness and pride. I, I challenge you to do this. Think back over the past week. How much time did you waste on the social media? And how much time did you spend looking at this? I mean, you be the judge. By the way, I was so proud of my wife. She said, honey, I got up the other morning. I woke up early. I got a cup of coffee. She said, I didn't realize it. She said, I rarely go on Facebook, but I went and I started looking. She said, I wasted an hour before I realized what had happened. She said, I felt so bad. I thought, that is a good woman. That is a good woman. If you'll spend as much time with God as you do on Facebook, you'll have no, no problem with self-righteousness and pride because pride, pride cannot live in the presence of God. It, it, you can't. You cannot be prideful before God and understand this is where happiness starts. Let me just close by asking you one more question. How many of you think Jesus was perfect? Just by a show of hands, just raise your hand. Some of you are thinking, Mike, that is so stupid, I'm not even going to answer that. I mean, of course he was perfect. Here's the reason I ask you that question. If Jesus was perfect and Jesus gave the message, the Sermon on the Mount, is it possible that the message, the Sermon on the Mount, is perfect? I would say yes. And if Jesus is perfect and his message is perfect, would we say that the sequence of the Sermon on the Mount is perfect? In fact, I mean, it, the fact that the Beatitudes come, very, the very first thing in the Sermon on the Mount, is it possible that that is part of God's inspired plan for the Bible, his word? I would say yes. Well then, let's take it the next step. Is it possible that the actual order of the Beatitudes is perfect, inspired? I think it is. Let me show you why. Uh, Jesus began in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And I believe Jesus began there, as I said earlier, because it all begins here. But watch this. When you realize that you're poor in spirit, notice verse 4. You're going to mourn over how hopeless you are in life without God. And that mourning is going to produce, verse 5, a meekness in you because it's going to begin to remove your pride. And that meekness will create, verse 6, a hunger and thirst for you for righteousness, mainly because you realize you can't be righteous in yourself, that it's got to come from God. And verse 6 tells us that when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be filled with God's righteousness. And when you're filled with God's righteousness, look at verse 7, you'll begin to show mercy. Why would you show mercy? Because you realize how much mercy has been shown to you. 
And when you start showing mercy to others, then you're going to become pure in heart, right? Verse 8, because you're thinking about others more than you're thinking about yourself. I mean, think what Jesus did. He gave up the splendor of heaven, became a man, became a servant, became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Just, this was Jesus' pathway, right? And when you become pure in heart, you're going to be like that. And when you're pure in heart and you're thinking of others more than you're thinking of yourself, verse 9, this is what's going to happen. You're going to become a peacemaker. You're going to become a peacemaker. In other words, you're going to find yourself helping other people make peace with God, make peace with one another. Understand that in the Bible is called the ministry of reconciliation. That is the business of God. And when you start doing the business of God, I promise you this, you are going to be persecuted, verse 10. But even though you're being persecuted, you can be glad. We saw last week, and it means you can jump for joy because you know you're doing what God wants you to do, which means you must be exactly where God wants you to be. And whenever you find yourself in the sweet spot of where God wants you to be, you're going to be in the happiest place on earth. But understand, it all begins, it all starts with being poor in spirit. Now, are you there? Are you there? Have you ever been there? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you that you looked down at this mess called planet Earth and the human race and you realize these people are hopelessly lost on their own. And you turned to the son and said, I need somebody to go and they gotta be perfect and they gotta be willing and they gotta die and pay all, once and for all the sin of all mankind. And we thank you that your son said, I'll go. We thank you that he came. We thank you that he died. We thank you that three days later, he was raised back to life to prove who he said he was. And he lives to make us happy. To make us happy. But help us to understand this is where it starts, Father. Spiritually bankrupt, nothing to offer in desperate need of a Savior. Help us to get there and help us to stay there. In your name we pray, amen.